Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Transforms us. You, oh holy God, you good, good Father, transform us today, transforms our, transform our minds where our minds are not lining up with the truth. We go through hard things, oh God, and you know everything we go through, but help us, oh God, be transformed in your presence that we do, we are not going to be the same. Oh, holy, holy, holy Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. We invite you into this place, and we are here for you and only you this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, today we're thankful for entrance into a kingdom of eternal glory. We thank you, Jesus, for your death, your burial, your resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God, that seals us for the day of redemption. Jesus, as you split the sky and allow all of the nations to see you for who you truly are, God. We look forward to this day with great hope and expectation. And God, I'm thankful for what Morgan opened the service with today, God. This reality that we are to look to you day in and day out for transformation. God, there is not one single day that goes by that we don't need your grace, that we don't need your forgiveness, that we don't need increasing awareness of the ways that we are not like you, God. You are a holy God. You are a holy God. Father, I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that every single day, God, we can approach your throne of grace, asking for help, asking for an increase, because you didn't just save us, God, to settle. You didn't just save us, God, for self-help. You saved us to die to ourselves that we could be raised to new life. New life. I want to read this passage from Romans 6, verse 6. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That our body of sin might be brought to nothing. Guys, this this pierces me. Has my old self been brought to nothing? Or do I still allow petty offenses and disagreements or complaints begin to creep up and alter the way that I view someone else, that I view the body of Christ? Our old self has been crucified. That means every time we are operating in a way that is not of the Holy Spirit, that thing has to die once more. It has to be violently put to death Sometimes we kind of live with our sin as if it's not that big of a deal, and yet the scripture is telling us that thing has been crucified. 
So we have to ask ourselves, have I been crucified again today? Am I allowing my old self to be crucified again today? So Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. We cannot do this apart from you, God, apart from your grace. Oh God, let us be crucified again, once again today, God, our old self, if it has crept up, God, let us take holy violence against it, God. I thank you, Jesus, that in the midst of falling short, you are our advocate, standing before the Father, covering us, declaring you are justified. There is no condemnation. So we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We look to you today, holy and righteous God. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So welcome again to Boonville Worship Center. We are glad to have you. It is always um, a joy to gather together to worship the Lord. And that is a privilege that we should keep at the forefront of our mind. We thank the Lord for opportunity to speak openly about the scriptures without the threat of persecution. We are thankful for the ability to edify ourselves and each other. Um, so we, uh, we just thank you for coming, and I'm going to open up again in prayer. God, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts, God, to see the light of your grace in the scriptures. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would do more than just touch our mind. God, I pray that you would transform us from the inside out. God, we ask you for divine grace, grace to understand grace, grace upon grace. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, open our eyes, Lord, that we would see you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'm going to be speaking about the transforming gospel of God's grace, our desperate need to learn to receive and to give God's grace. This topic is far bigger than I have time. I always wish I could preach for like two and a half hours, maybe give you a bathroom break. That would be nice. Um, but so I, it, it, it's always hard to encapsulate a topic like this because grace is more than just, it is a theology, there's the theology, the doctrine of grace, the nuts and bolts of what it is and, and how, how God uses it. And then there's the grace that we need to, to rightly align our own soul with God. I need grace to see myself rightly. And then there's also the grace that is the practical outworking of grace in relationships around me. So my aim today is to be able to hopefully mix, give a healthy mix of all of that, both of the, the doctrine and the application of grace in our life. When I'm talking about grace, one thing that we need to keep in mind is that everything that we have 
everything that we've received is by grace. It's easy to get stirred up, to get hungry about one topic or another. I'll take the topic of revival. And we can accidentally stumble into the paradigm that says, if I line everything up just right, if I'm proving to God that I'm hungry and I'm praying and I'm fasting and I'm being obedient and I'm, and I'm showing up to all the prayer meetings and I'm initiating extra prayer meetings and I'm doing the stuff, and if we do that corporately, if we multiply it out, then we can, in effect, earn or guarantee the release of revival. But how many of you know that merit-based intercession is pagan? Merit-based intercession is actually pagan. The, the concept that I can release the right offering, present my... ripe cherries or whatever to a god of harvest or a god of goddess of fertility and i pres- and i do the right ritual i say the right incantation and i present that before god then then i'm securing the ability to conceive another child or i'm or i'm guaranteeing that my family will be protected or provided for that paradigm of merit-based, I give, therefore I get, it's pagan. So when we're talking about grace, we, we begin to see that often much of our life, we accidentally slip into that wrong paradigm of merit, or of law, or of perfection of living, and therefore I, re- I receive, I, I, I can guarantee from God something in return based on my performance. So when we're talking about the transforming gospel of God's grace, it is a humbling topic, because just as we sang this morning, there's nothing that I have to offer. There's nothing I have to offer. The, the reality that God loosed my voice, that I don't stutter like I used to as a child, I didn't earn that. There's nothing I did to earn that. All of our life is wrapped up in this reality of grace. And it's one thing to begin to see that, but it's another thing to begin to transition from that understanding to learning how to live it and walk it out. So I I, I don't normally read any quotes on Sundays. I keep that to Wednesday classes. But I'm going to read a few quotes just to help us get a sense of what this grace of God is. 
Grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion. That's a quote by Jerry Bridges. And another way we can say it is, grace is the free bestowal of kindness on one who has no claim to it. Grace is the free bestowal of kindness on someone who has no claim to it. And that's by Louis Burkhoff. He's a systematic theologian from the early 1900s. Another way we could say it is God's mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And God's patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. That's by Wayne Grudem. So why did he package mercy, grace, and patience together? If we're familiar with the Scriptures, we will often see these things packaged together. In Exodus 33, 19, it says, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. This is when God encountered Moses. And it says, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, it is within God's control and within his right to dispense grace and compassion to the measure and the degree that he chooses. Even that reality can be offensive. We all know there's a spectrum in everything. There's a spectrum of our capacity to to earn income, the spectrum of our capacity and our gifting and relational connection. We, we're, we're all somewhere on the spectrum. We all know people who are exponentially better than us at building relationships and keeping them. We know there's people exponentially better than each of us at multiplying wealth and enjoying it. And God is within his right to choose to be gracious on whom he chooses to be gracious to, to show compassion on whom he chooses to show compassion to. So when we're talking about grace, we're, we're immediately confronted with this reality, this temptation to not be gracious. Because everywhere we look, we see differences. We see people succeeding where we fail. We, we see people increasing where we have no idea how to get the ball rolling. We see people multiplying wealth, and we, for us, it slips through our fingers. So grace is God choosing to release favor and blessing and enabling power 
to accomplish this or that. And it is within his complete control to not just do it, but to release different measures, measures of it to whom he chooses. In Exodus 34, 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So this is God's identity. God is a God of grace. He is a God that's full of compassion and grace. So the question is, how much do I need of that grace? How much of my life should be touched by grace? We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We're motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we're glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. And that's another quote by Jerry Bridges. So let's, I want us to, I want to pitch a vision for what's possible. I'm going to read a couple, couple verses. Psalm 133.1. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant is it for brothers, brothers to dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant is it for brothers to dwell together in unity. So this is the, this is the vision of what's possible. If grace is present, if grace is nurtured, if grace is abounding, then this is the result. Brothers dwell together in unity. And it's good and pleasant. How many of you know it's good and it's pleasant? It's pleasurable to us when we are in relationships that are full of grace. When grace is removed then suddenly, it's like our joints. If the cartilage is removed or is dissolved or whatever happens, it's worn away, what happens? Pain. Inflammation. It, our, our joints begin to cease to flow freely. So when grace is stripped from various aspects of our life, we begin to feel it. Most of the brain is water. When we are severely dehydrated, what happens? Severe headaches. Not just headaches, but it's often tied to nausea. So we have nausea, we have severe headaches just because we need enough water in our, bra our brain. Many years ago, I came up with this fun phrase that you need to wet your brain. Creative way to say, drink water. I need to go wet my brain. My brain needs water. So when grace is stripped out of our life, a friendship without grace will break. A marriage without grace will fail. I think if you were to boil it down, that's possibly 
you could possibly say that is the number one root cause of breakdown in relationships or marriages, is grace. And, and as we continue to look at the scriptures, we will begin to understand more what that means. So, and then another verse, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How did you feel when I read that? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When I was thinking about that verse, the image that went through my head was like a hot chocolate commercial. It, it feels so cozy and warm. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. You can just see someone sitting down and sipping their hot chocolate. But I think if this was a commercial, perhaps that's the way it would start. But then I think the commercial's ending would be something like a five-gallon vat of boiling hot chocolate being dumped on top of us. All the while, the individual who dumped it on top of us, they say it wasn't their fault. And then they insinuate that they think it's actually your fault. They think it's your fault that this five-gallon vat of boiling hot chocolate got dumped on you. That's what this verse is like. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Wait a second. It's easy to be kind to one another and tender-hearted when nothing has gone wrong. Before the hot chocolate gets dumped on you, we're all good. I'm good. Are you good? We're good. We like each other. But the moment something bad happens, and not only when something bad happens, but then there's the, the issue of who did what and who's at fault and to what degree, then suddenly we're faced with that reality that the, kindness, the call to kindness and tenderheartedness is in the context of forgiving each other. And forgiveness is required when transgression is present. So it's, it's easy to be warmed by the, the pleasantness of the reality of kindness and tenderheartedness. But where that's fleshed out is actually in really difficult situations. Actually where there's pain present. Actually with our, when, when we've been covered by boiling liquids that we did not want poured on us. Right? So there's this famous old quote from St. Augustine of Hippo. It says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or grace. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, grace. So that's the call. In all things, grace. 
In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But the reality is that we don't like people having different opinions than us, coming to different conclusions, right? So we're, we're daily faced with this call to be gracious as God is gracious, to be full of loving kindness and mercy and charity towards one another. But it's actually much harder to walk out than it is to understand. So we're going to walk through a passage, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to ask a, a number of questions about the text that will hopefully bring out some understanding. So 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10 says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, all of you, so meaning the younger men and the elders, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So why would we need to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another? Right? That's, that, that's the first exhortation. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. I mean, when we talk about humility, we're often talking about be humble before God, right? He's perfect. God is worthy of our praise. He's eternal. There's all of these amazing things about Him, and therefore, we should have a right posture to be humble before Him. But this verse says to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why should I be humble towards someone else? Why should I be humble? I can see their issues. I can see their faults. I'm hurt by the things that they do. So why should I be humble in their, in, before them? And why is God talking about opposing the proud in this context? It says God is opposed to the proud. So there's this call to have humility towards one another, and then God is saying he opposes the proud. This is not passivity. This isn't just God sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, you're not going to get your sucker today because you hit your little sister. It says God's opposing the proud. Active 
opposition. How many of you want the creator of heaven and earth to oppose you? To make like life difficult for you on purpose? And then why does God tell us to cast all our anxiety on him? And he reminds us that he cares. At this point, I'm getting a little scared. He calls us to cast all of our anxiety on him. Like, wait a minute. Why are you insinuating that I'm full of anxiety? It just, it just said that if there's pride in me, God's opposing me. If God's opposing you, be ready for a flood of anxiety. Be ready for relationships that are full of anxiety. But there's this invitation, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares. See, this is a far more interesting passage than I've ever seen before. He cares. What did we learn the last time I preached? When we're talking about hearing the voice of God, discerning His voice, what we learned is in chaos, the temptation of the Israelites was to not believe that God cared. Why? Because they were overburdened with suffering. So the temptation, when the pressure is on, when opposition is present, where grace is needed but there is none, when God is opposing us, when we're full of anxiety, the temptation will always be to believe that God doesn't care. And then it goes even further. Then why are we called to be on alert and we're told that the devil is seeking to devour us? How is he seeking to devour us? In other words, the devil's on the scene. The devil is on the scene. So we have God actively opposing us when there's pride, and we have the devil actively on the scene seeking to devour us. How many of you know if the devil's present and if God is opposing you? <coughs> that's not a good situation. That's like, hey, God... You're opposing me, but I need your help because there's this devil here trying to devour me. So we're called to cast our anxiety on him because he cares for us. So even when we feel that God is opposing us, even when we feel like we've failed the call, we have failed the call to be humble towards one another it still says God cares. Even in our failure, even when we have come to a point of pride where God is opposing us and allowing the devil permission to seek to devour us, even in that space of utter failure, God says he cares, and there's an invitation to cast our anxiety on him. 
And then why does it look like God doesn't show up with grace until after we have suffered for a little while? Have you ever noticed that? I remember, I mean, this verse has stood out for me, stood out to me, just this one verse. I didn't understand the full context, but this one phrase stu- have, has stood out to me for many years. It says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will show up. So God's full of grace, plenty of grace, but yet somehow God has ordained, God allows us in our pride to run up against a wall, have God's active opposition to us, so much so that we're full of anxiety, that we don't believe He cares. And yet, there's this invitation to cast our anxiety on him, but yet he's waiting. It says, after you've suffered for a little while. In other words, I'm going to let this thing build. I mean, it was the same thing with the Israelites. They were actively, manifestly under slavery for 400 years. And they were crying out to him for deliverance. And yet, even after God heard the cry, right, we, 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 we learned that the chaos increased. It said they fell down and worshipped. They believed God for deliverance. They fell down and worshipped. But yet, the chaos increased. In other words, that it was challenged. Their, their, their worship was their worship of God. Their belief that God was going to deliver them was challenged. So they suffered more. And after they suffered a little while, God showed up with his grace. How many of you know the Israelites were not delivered from slavery based on merit? They did not get delivered based on merit. Why did God deliver them? By grace. He delivered them because he had made a covenant with Abraham, that he chose out of his abundant grace, not based on performance, he chose to pass down that covenant from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and then passed it down to Joseph, and Joseph passed it down to his brothers. So is grace. So we are called to be on alert because the devil loves chaos, thrives in conflict, and he has an active plan to devour us. We are reminded that suffering is universal and that God delays giving grace and breakthrough not because he doesn't care, but if you look at the, at the end of this verse, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, that's good news. He's called you to eternal glory. In other words, the present suffering is not God's end for you. Even when God's actively opposing you because you're proud, that's not his end for you. That is not your appointed end. It says he's called you to his eternal glory. Praise God. Praise God, the active opposition of God to us when we're proud, when we don't know how to give grace to one another. 
His end goal for us is eternal glory. So how can I obtain that eternal glory? Let me tell you, it will not be based on merit. Because I can never do it good enough. It says, he will himself perfect. Himself. He will himself perfect. How many of you know you can't perfect yourself? You can participate. You can stumble through it in weakness. But you can't earn it. He will protect. He will perfect you. Confirm, strengthen, and establish. In other words, that's a whole lot of God doing stuff. And through the chaos, through God opposing us in our pride, inviting us to cast our anxiety on Him because we, we've done it. We are the perpetrators. We are the ones that have allowed ourselves to get into positions where grace is absent, where the, 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 the main currency of our relationship, maybe a single relationship, maybe multiple relationships, the currency of that relationship is no longer grace, but law and merit. We've, we're the ones that have done it. But yet God has not forsaken us. It says, after you have suffered a little while. In other words, God is giving us an invitation to have revelation on our heart to say, God, this isn't working. This isn't working. It says, younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, that means young to old, old to young, old to old, young to young, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. If that's not the practice, if that's not the day-to-day -day working out of our life, then accidentally or on purpose, we will find ourselves struggling with pride, being opposed by God, suffering to the point of thinking that God's not good, and yet God is still there saying, I'm actually calling you to eternal glory. And I will help you, but you've got to ditch the pride. You've got to humble yourself before God, not just before God, but before each other to receive help. So the law comes easy. How many of you know that? The law is easy. I... I I, I don't, I don't, I, you don't have to come to my class on, on how to live out law-based relationships. Grace comes only through faith. Grace. Entering into an entirely different world. If rules and detailed do's and don'ts could liberate our hearts from the power of sin... Jesus would never have needed to die on the cross. Right? If rules, if detailed do's and don'ts, if clarity on the law it was, was only what was needed, if, if it's just an issue of you don't understand it, 
You just need to go to the class again, and we'll break down the words again and show you again that this is the law. This is what it is. This is what it is. I'm going to show you. If that's all we needed, then let's just go through the class on law 12 times a year. And eventually we'll get it, and then eventually we'll earn something from God. But what we receive from God is greater than what we could ever earn. And earning, or in that paradigm of merit and law, will actually produce in us pride that will then lead to God opposing us. The worldview of law and living out of the law comes far more naturally to us than living in the worldview of the gospel of grace. The law comes easy. We call it legalism. It's living under the paradigm of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You don't have to teach this to a kid. They've never heard that phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but they, uh, they understand it. They're like, you hit me, let me show you, I can hit you harder back. You made me cry, I can make you cry. So that comes easy. When someone hurts us, we hurt them back. When someone loses our respect, we often never give it back. When someone offends us, we can be tempted to never again speak highly of them. We break fellowship after a few missed expectations. We leave a church after hearing a few messages we disagree with. We threaten divorce when hurt over mistreatment and persistent missed expectations. Without grace, that's in us. Hope, how many of you know hope is not found in our obedience? The doorway to hope is hopelessness. In other words, and th th those, those phrases came from Paul Tripp. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. In other words, I have to run up against my strength, realize that in my strength, I fail. In my strength, I can't do it. In my strength, there's too much pride. In my strength, I'm living out of law. And I've got to come to the end of myself and say, God, there has to be a better way. God, teach me the gospel of grace. So 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11 says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. How many of you want revelations from heaven? How many of you want it? How many of you are signing up for encounters with God that are so great that a literal messenger of Satan has to be assigned to you to keep you humble? You still want it? Let's keep going. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times 
that it might leave me. And he said to me, we we're talking about the gospel of grace. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected, where? In weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. I ought to have been commended by you, but in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even if I am nothing. Okay. It says, my grace is sufficient to you for you. In other words, the grace of God is being manifest in the context of him being overwhelmed by this negative experience of torment that God allowed to keep him humble. He says his grace is sufficient for you. The grace of God wasn't removing the difficulty. It was saying power is perfected in weakness. We want power to be central to God's plan for our life, Yes. How many of you are just hoping, believing that God's ultimate plan for your life in the next decade and two and three is for God to 100-fold release the power of God in your life, right? But how many of you know that we want manifest power, but Paul isn't primarily or firstly talking about power? Instead, he is saying that weakness is not just a part of God's plan for us, but it's key to encountering God's enabling power. So weakness is part of God's design for your life. None of you are running up here for impartation? Weakness is part of God's design for your life. God did not just call Paul to be like, man, you are going to be the most eminent of apostles. You are going to have power beyond comprehension. And man, everyone's going to love you. And it's going to be awesome. With power came opposition. With revelation came torment. With great opportunity came great distress. So God ordained both the manifest power in his life and the manifestation of revelations from God, but he also ordained for Paul to be so weak and so overcome that he had to plead with God, God, remove this torment from me. I can't handle it. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient. In other words, I'm not going to remove it. You're going to have to go through it. But in going through it, you will see, you will encounter the grace of God so much so that his final conclusion was, I'm content with weakness and with insults. 
How many of you love being insulted? Like, this is off the chain. He was content with insults. If I was to stand up here and pick one of you out from the crowd and just insult you, you know, know something about you or your personality or your weaknesses and just rip one into you, I'm just going to insult you, just tear you apart. And you're just like, oh, yes. This is the doorway to the grace of God. Come on. Mary, turn the volume up. I want to hear this insult with greater, with greater thrust into my chest. So Paul was encountering grace that was sufficient. In other words, God in, grace to go through trials... The pleasure of that, the sweetness, it didn't lessen the difficulty, but it, the sweetness touched his heart to the point where he released. He let go what he perceived to be his right, his right to demand from God ease and blessing. He let it go. He said, okay, God, not only am I going to persevere through this, I'm actually going to be content with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with hardship for the sake of Christ. That is where the grace of God wants to take you, wants to take me. God is not content with just giving me a microphone or influence or authority, or measures of anointing. God also wants to take me, Jason. God wants to take me through hardship. God wants to take me through life circumstances that press, that press upon me so that I encounter the grace of God and it becomes sweet. It touches my heart in a way that I say, okay, it's worth it. Trials are worth it. Because what God is bringing me into is eternal glory. His end for me is eternal glory. No matter the chaos today, no matter the manifest insults to your face that hurt, no matter the trials, no matter the persecutions, even if it is a manifest messenger of Satan sent to torment you, with God, with the grace of God, we can walk through it. Not only can we walk through it, but we can enter into a place of peace and rest where we settle and we say, okay, God, you are trying to perfect me. You are trying to shape me. You are trying to work something in me that is, that is of greater value. What God is, is wanting to 
shape in us through conflict, not not take us, not by the manifest power of God, prevent all pain from happening in your life. But what God wants to release in us and through us, through conflict, through pressure, through trials, through persecution, through insult, what God is wanting to develop in us is of greater value than the so-called manifest power of God that would prevent anything negative from ever touching your life. And that is hard. That is easy in theory, but hard in reality. So the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We're going to read through this, these 16 verses, Matthew 20. Verses 1 through 16. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like. So let that be the, the frame, the framework for this story. The kingdom of heaven is like. We all want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard. He went out about the, the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. To those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are, you not, why are you standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyards too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. It is, not lawful for me to, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So that, so the last shall be first and the first last. This is a powerful verse. The laborers, no matter how long they worked, were paid based on both personal need and on the generosity of the landowner, and not based upon merit and comparisons. So, in Deuteronomy 24, 15... This is the, the bigger context. It says, You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin for you. 
So the bigger context is these day laborers were poor. So they had need. They had need. But the ones who did more labor, they could care less about the need. Why? The paradigm of merit and law will always produce in us comparisons that lead to this hard-heartedness that says, I could care less what you need. I worked more than you. I could care less what you need. You, like, we are, not, we are not the same. I'm better than you. I work harder than you. So I should get more than you. That is the paradigm of law and merit. There's always a comparison. There is always the measuring. And, and what it, God called him out. He said, is your eye envious because I am generous? Remember, this whole parable is framed as pointing to the reality of how the kingdom of God works. Psalm 103.10, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. So we're talking about the nature of God. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. If we really want to live in that realm of merit and law, We are in for trouble. We are in for the temptation to be envious, to be prideful, to compare to the point of not giving a rip about someone else's need. They're just like, well, I work harder than you. And that law produces in us a lack of grace one to another. So this paradigm of merit led to grumbling and complaining. Living under the law instead of under grace will lead to comparison based upon performance and merit instead of thankfulness based upon the generosity of God. Even when that generosity looks like it's greater in the life of someone else than in your life. Whoa. See, in this scenario... We had someone who God had ordained for them to carry the brunt of the burden all day long. He had ordained it, right? They got up early. Maybe their personality was such that they were just this go-getter like, man, I'm going to be the first to the marketplace, the first to be hired because I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get what is due me. And then there's these other people that somehow they... They didn't know how to get seen. They didn't know how to build rapport with the, with, with, with the, the, the manager, the owner, and say, like, they didn't know how to get the job. And God's generosity wasn't focused on the merit differences between the two. God's generosity was, I want to provide Regardless of, of your 
ability to, to perfectly labor, regardless of your ability to, to rub shoulders with the owner and get his favor and be hired first. So God is just and true and free to bless, elevate, inspire, and take others higher and farther than us. It is not an injustice for God to bless someone more than He has blessed us. This is, this is hard. It, 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 it's hard in the looking at it, and it's even harder to live it out. If we want to be free from merit and law, we have to wrestle with this truth and settle it in our hearts. That God is free. He is free to bless someone more than you. Otherwise, I will be comparing my devotions. I'll be comparing my, my gifting. I'll be comparing my righteousness. I'll be comparing my labor. I'll be comparing my worship style. I'll be comparing all of these things to those around me. And when I see someone else more blessed than me, more anointed, more gifted, more they got their stuff together, they got a healthier marriage, whatever it may be. When I see that blessing on them and I, and I see that my diligence, my labor, and I see this difference, I'm like, th then I begin to point the finger either at God or at them and probably both. Saying, God, I've, I've, you are in, you are unjust because you bless them more than me. And they, they don't work as hard as me. They're not as gifted as me. They're not as social as me. Whatever it may be, those things get in our hearts and we begin to compare. So we need to settle it in our hearts that God chooses. The Bible says he will be gracious on whom he, he will be gracious. On whom he chooses, he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. In other words, God preordains for some to be ridiculously blessed on this earth. He preordains for some to just seemingly float through life with the perfect marriage or the perfect business idea where they just like sneeze and out comes a half million dollar business. Like, how did you do that? Part of humility is, is humbling ourselves before God and before each other saying, God ordains for these, for these differences. He ordains for, for the manifestation of God's grace and power to be different. In, in, in gifting, in calling, and anointing, there are differences. There always will be. There's nothing I can do to earn equaling someone else in gifting, calling, or anointing. There's nothing I can do. The grace of God is unmerited favor. And he gets to choose, and that's offensive. Outside of God's help, we will be stuck in a merit-based paradigm of law. This touches both our theology of salvation and it touches the way we live day to day. It's both. Because if we're living under merit and law, that can creep its way into our theology and we begin to, be begin to preach that way. 
of just measure up, measure up, measure up, work harder, work harder, work harder, earn from God. But it also affects our day-to-day relationships. The fact that God deals with His children on the basis of grace without regard to merit or demerit is a staggering concept. It is opposed to almost everything we have been taught about life. We have been generally conditioned to think that if we work hard and pay our dues in life, we will be rewarded in proportion to our work. You do so much, you deserve so much. It is a commonly accepted principle in life, but God's grace does not operate on a reward for works basis. It is much better than that. God is gracious beyond all measure or comparison. And that is another quote by Jerry Bridges. Says, but now, Romans three, nineteen. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. Wait a second. Have you ever noticed when we are operating under merit and law, our mouth is never closed? When I am operating, operating under merit and law, my, my mouth is never closed. Why? Because I'm taking the law and I'm angrily putting it as a standard above someone else saying, you're not measuring up. You're not measuring up. You transgressed the law and it affected me negative, negatively. Right? But here it says that the law is to be released so that every mouth is closed. In other words, those are two different responses to law. If my mouth is closed, then when I see the law, I say, oh my goodness, I can't measure up. I am in desperate need of help because I can't do this. And my mouth is shut. And I've got nothing to say. I can't angrily correct you because I am in desperate need of mercy and grace for myself. If my mouth is open, then that tells me. If my mouth is open and it's filled with law, then that tells me that I am operating under merit and law. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So years ago, I, I, I understood this only from one facet. 
I've preached verse by verse through Romans. I love it. I would love to do it again. So I understood this from one side. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In other words, I understood the, theo- the doctrine of it, the, the theology, as it pertains to salvation. By the works of the law, no, no flesh will be justified. But this time, I began to see this in light of living in either the law or grace as it pertains to fleshing it out in real relationships. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So this is the heart of human conflict. No one is justified by works, and this includes us when we are trying to justify ourselves in light of someone else exposing our sins. If it says by the works of the law, no one is justified, then that means when I am trying to justify myself in conflict, it will literally never work. It will never work. I mean, th- th- I, mean I, ho- I hope you're, you're getting this. Because in me, it, I'm sh- it's shocking me. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We, we try this all the time. And we think that the only thing we're missing is that we need the other party to be quiet long enough to hear our position. If they just understood my position, if I just give enough examples of how they've transgressed, if I just show the video feed of what they did and what they said to me, then I can prove that I am the victim of someone else's sin against me. But this was revelation to my heart this week as I began to see, wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That means both sides. Both parties. The one who perceives that they're the victim and the, one that per- the other one perceives that often they're the victim in conflict. Both sides are pointing the finger saying, you have transgressed me and I can prove it if you would only shut up and listen. Right? And the other one's like, you're misjudging me. You don't understand, the, you don't understand my heart posture. Like, you're, you're unjustly lashing out. But both sides of that, the Bible says that neither is justified. Neither works. It's like throwing pebbles at a, at a wall trying to get it to break down. It'll never work. All we have the power to do under this paradigm of law and merit is expose and point out the weakness, failures, and sins of each other while we point our finger and cry out for justice or, we're try, or we try to dispense justice in our own strength. Either way, if we think about it, it's hopeless and it never brings life. 
Proving someone sinned against you doesn't empower them to act different next time. How many of you know that? Proving. I mean, you could have an ironclad case. I can prove that I was wronged. I can prove that I was sinned against. I can prove that I was mistreated. I can prove it. But that whole world of law and merit ends in death because there will never be grace. There will never be grace in that scenario, even if you can prove it, an ironclad case. You can prove mistreatment against you because the Bible says he gives grace to the humble. In humility, we come before God and we say, God, you've ordained for me to go through suffering so that your grace would be made perfect in my weakness. Even when I'm mistreated, even when I'm misjudged, even when my motives are flipped upside down and they're, 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 they're you know, whatever, whatever the scenario, before God, no flesh is justified by the works of the law. There's nothing we could do in that, in that whole world, that whole realm. There's nothing I can do to, to be proven right without grace those relationships fail. Without grace, that heart connect fails. So, Craig, if you want to come up. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier for those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, he is the perfection and he is the one to rescue us. He is the perfection, and He is the one to rescue us. I will never have a defense perfect enough to prove or demonstrate that I am not at fault. Everyone swallow that. I will never have an ironclad case that can prove to God that I am righteous and they are not. God ordained for the whole system to be that Christ would be just and that he would be the justifier. No one else will take that place. No one else will be able to squeak onto his throne and say, oh, me too, me too, I'm just too. I'm just too, look at what they did to me. I'm just too. 
No, it says Christ is the only one that's fully just. He's just and the justifier. He is the one that has the perfection, and he is the one to freely give us that perfection by faith. So I am saved by faith through grace, that not of works so that no one can boast. There is so much more that could be said. I really could continue for another two hours. But I invite you all to stand. Hebrews 4.16. Well, we'll start at 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. In other words, the only way to access the grace of God is to first acknowledge our need for mercy. So if that's you, if you want to be able to come before God and say, God, I need grace. God, I need to know how to live this out in my present world, my present relationships, my present marriage. Then I invite you to come forward. We all need grace. If left to ourselves, we will always primarily live out our lives based on merit and law and flesh. So God, we just come before you. Father, we ask you for this transforming gospel of grace, this meritless favor from you, God, to be given to us, Lord, so that we can have the favor of God upon our relationships, the favor of God in our marriage, the favor of God with our relationship with family and friends and bosses. God, we ask you for grace. Teach us. Wash us in your grace, God, and teach us how to live a better way. God, we cry out for grace. God, give us mercy. Forgive us for the transgression, God, of living in law and merit. You are the only one that's just. God, have mercy for thinking that we are righteous apart from you, God. There's nothing I can do that's righteous. I need righteousness from you as a free gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time. 